As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 102. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. This week, we're hearing a familiar voice. Gretchen Rubin, author of The Happiness Project and most recently, The Four Tendencies, in which she investigates how different people, or in today's case, fictional characters, respond to internal and external expectations. Gretchen joined us on the show last fall in episode 52 for our special Kid Week series because she is a voracious reader of children's literature. But today we're broadening our horizons and talking about books for all ages and books where we see specific tendencies on display. In today's episode, we dive into habits and happiness, human nature, literary obsessions, and more. Let's get to it. Gretchen, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be talking to you again. It's so fun to talk books with you, Anne. Well, I'm so glad you're back and back in our regular format. So this is episode 102 of What Should I Read Next? And I think 96 of our episodes have featured literary matchmaking where guests tell me, three books they love, one book that's not for them, and what they've been reading lately, and we talk about what they should read next. But you were a guest on our Kid Week special week that we had last November, and you came on to talk about all things children's literature, and it was amazing. So readers, go listen to that. But today, we're having you in our regular format, and I'm so excited about it. Yeah, that was such a fun conversation, and it's so fun to think about children's literature, but it's also fun to think about adult literature. So that's what we get to talk about today. <laughs> all the books, all the time. Yes. I think we're both happy campers. Yes. Okay, so we know you're a kid lit lover. Can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself? Well, I'm a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. Um, most recently, I've been focused on this uh, four tendencies framework that I created that divides people into four categories, which is another way of looking at human nature, understanding how people um, behave, why we do the things we do, why we can't do some things. Um, just, I always am trying to understand human nature. So I write about that a lot. And I also have a podcast where I talk about it called happier. Yes. Which is one of my regulars. If you all are looking for new podcasts, Gretchen, I'm a personality junkie myself. How did you first get captured? Yes, you are. Yeah, you definitely, you literally wrote the book about personality frameworks. Um, I, you know, I have a very cataloging kind of mind. I have like, I'm always really drawn to taxonomies. And in fact, I just came across this book, which I can't remember the name of the author, but it's called The Food Thesaurus. And it's all about sort of the taxonomy of flavors. And I was just enchanted by this new, like this framework of thinking about flavors, which frankly is something that I'm not even that interested in. I'm not a foodie type of person, but I always love like vocabularies, like you know, they say there are two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people who like to divide people into two kinds of people and the kind of people who don't. And I love these four categories, these 10 categories. I feel like having a vocabulary to quickly identify differences and highlight the way people might um, see the world in a different way is very, very useful. And um, and so I'm sort of like enchanted by any framework that tries to get at these differences and, and kind of illuminate what are often hidden patterns in our lives. Do you have a theory about why it is so powerful to be able to articulate the things that we know and experience every day, but very 
rarely stop and put into words? Well, I I feel a very intense pleasure, and I think other people feel this too, where somehow there's something that you've kind of sort of subconsciously realized or a pattern you've kind of picked up, but you've never really stopped to put your finger on. And then all of a sudden somebody gives it a label or, you know, describes it in a paragraph and, and you feel this sense of recognition when you're like, yes, at last someone has put a word to it or like, oh, I had this thing about me. Like when I came up with underbuyers and overbuyers, it was like all these people were like, oh, my gosh, I'm an underbuyer, too. I didn't know that this was a thing. And I'm like, it wasn't a thing until I put a label on it. But now it's like we can all rally together and take pride in our underbuyer selves and figure out how to solve for some kind of some of the annoyances of being an underbuyer. And then, of course, there are overbuyers and they have their own set of problems, which we don't experience. We have like the flip side. Um, and so I think part of it is that sense of recognition. Like you see the world more clearly and, and you see yourself more clearly. And then also I think you feel con more connected to other people because you're like, well, I thought maybe this was just my own private pathology, you know? And so, and so a lot of times I think it increases compassion for yourself and for other people when you realize like, okay, you know, I'm this way. A lot of people are this way. A lot of people aren't this way. So how do we work this out? Yes. Do you, are you able to trace back to the time when you first got interested in habits and human nature? I don't know. Um, you know, I think it's funny because one time somebody said to me, well, what's your subject? Like, what's your grand subject? And I was like, human nature. And they're like, you can't pick that as a subject. And for years, I was like, oh, I guess I can't. And then I'm like, what am I thinking? Of course I can. Um, so I don't remember when that was specifically when I put my finger on that. But definitely my first book was my first major foray into it, which was uh, a book that I wrote called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide, which is kind of this satirical, it's sort of like the preppy handbook meets Machiavelli. And that was the first time I really did kind of a systematic look at human nature. But I think even like when I think about the papers that I was writing in law school, like I, I was obsessed in law school with the question of why owners would destroy their own possessions. And I mean, when I say obsessed, I mean, I was obsessed with this. I, I did end up writing a book about it. I wrote a whole law paper about it. I wrote a novel about it, which was really bad and locked in a desk drawer. So yeah, I think it goes back pretty far. So Austin Kleon recently said that the trick to writing a book was to pick a topic you could completely immerse yourself in and do so happily for a few years and then be willing to talk about it for the rest of your life. Does that capture your relationship to habits and happiness? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a great, that's a great um, thing to remind yourself when you're writing a book. But also, I think maybe one of the things is the best subjects are one that the more you get into it and the more you learn, the more it seems like it expands. Like to me, happiness only gets bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, human nature gets more and more vast the more I study it. And that's exciting. It always feels like it feels uh, endless and limitless and like there's always something new to discover over the hill. And that's something that is ex very exciting as a writer. When did you first start to see the tendencies emerge as you were researching, writing and talking about habits and happiness? Now that I definitely have a couple like key moments um, where, you know, it was like the, the, the thunder, the, the lightning bolt hit me on the head. So one was this very ordinary moment. And at this point, I had written The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. So I was like thinking all the time about happiness. And and it, this led me to the subject of habits, because a lot of times I realized it wasn't that people didn't know what would make them happier. They know they'd be happier if they got more sleep or read more or quit sugar or whatever it was. But for some reason, they weren't able to execute that in their life. And that led me to the subject of habits, because a lot of times when we the things that would make us happier, really, we want to turn into habits. So that led me to the question of like, okay, well, then how do you change a habit? Because some people, sometimes people can, but sometimes they can't. And so I was having lunch with a friend and um, I was grilling her about her happiness and her habits because as my sister Elizabeth says, I can be a little bit of a happiness bully sometimes. So I was pressing her pretty hard. And she said to me something that just, even though many people had said similar things, it like hit me. Like, I mean, my mind was exploding. She said, here's the weird thing about me. I know that I would be happier if I exercised. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? And to me, I was like, this is an explosive question because it's the same person, the same behavior. At one time it was effortless. Now she can't do it. How do we explain this? 
Um, and this is what led me into a constant thinking about certain patterns of when people could and couldn't. Um, what I thought at the time was form a habit. What I realized later was how, why are they meeting or resisting an expectation? And that was the second epiphany. So the first epiphany was the, my friend on the track team. The second epiphany was me noticing all these patterns that people were telling me, not knowing how they fit together, not knowing if they even fit together at all, not, not being able to really make sense of it, but feeling them, seeing these patterns and what I was hearing and seeing. And then I just looked down at my to-do list one day and I, the word expectation just started reverberating in my head. And that's when I realized that the key to the four tendencies was how do you meet expectations, inner expectations and outer expectations? And I realized that was the key. That was the key that explained my friend on the track team. It explained people's reaction to my happiness project. It explained um, all kinds of patterns that I was seeing. Everything started to fit together once I hit on that aspect. But oh my gosh, it almost melted my brain. I mean, one thing for me, just as a, again, as a side note of process, I take voluminous notes, so many notes. I spend hours taking notes every week. And a lot of times I don't know why something is important. It will just seem striking to me and I'll write it down. And then almost, like sometimes it's years later that I, I begin to understand why something was significant. And so I think that's something that if you're trying to build sort of the, the um, fodder for your mind, my way is taking notes just for what it's worth. At what point did you realize that this framework about how people respond to expectations needed to be a book? Well, it was interesting because like, so in Better Than Before, I identified the 21 strategies that people can use to make or break their habits. And um, 21 is a lot. Um, and so each one I, um, I go through and explain why it works um, when it works, how we can use it. And, you know, some of them work for some people and not others. Some are available to us at some points of our life and not in others. But one of the ones that I talk about is the strategy of the four tendencies, which is so the four tendencies are whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. And this has huge implications for how you best form habits or how other people can help you form habits. But what I found, and you know, and maybe you've seen this on your book tour, Anne, is like you go out, you give a presentation, and in the presentation, I always pick the juiciest, the most counterintuitive, the most surprising, the most exciting things from the book and like highlight those things. So I would give this long talk about habits, all the things that I thought were so interesting about habits. And in part, as one of the things, I would talk about the four tendencies. So then I would say, okay, I'm done talking. Now it's time for Q&A. All anybody wanted to ask about was the four tendencies. Like I had hit all these things I thought were so fascinating. And people were like, uh-uh, we want to talk about the four tendencies. And I kept getting, e and then once that book, once better than before came out, I was just getting deluged with emails from people who were asking me incredibly sophisticated, thoughtful questions about using the four tendencies as in healthcare, as teachers, um, in relationships, um, at work. And then also I was getting all these amazing examples of people saying like, oh, I'm a rebel. And here's an example of how it played out in my life in this very rebel way. Or, you know, oh, I'm an obliger. And this is why this is what such a crucial um, revelation to me about how to harness my obliger tendency. And so so I just realized I need to write a book that is going to go through it all at a much deeper level than I could when it was just one of 21 chapters going through all the different habit um, strategies. It really needed to be worked out. And then there were things that people kept asking me, like, well, what if the different tendencies pair up? Well, you can't 100% predict that, but there are certain patterns that you can predict. Like, it's hard to be an upholder paired with a rebel, either direction. Um, rebels, when they do pair up most often, overwhelmingly are paired up with obligers. That's the pattern that you see. How do you communicate? Like if you're trying to have a message that's going to resonate with a lot of people, how do you make sure that you're not alienating one of the tendencies, which is very easy to do? Or how are you trying to push the buttons of all four tendencies in a very short message? So all these things, um, see, they just, they, I, I was just like, I just, people kept asking me these questions. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to write a book that's going to answer all the questions. And then I won't have to write a lot of long emails. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the timeline from initial aha moment to publication date on September 12th. Well, you know, because, because it was part of the better than before research and writing, this book was kind of in process a lot longer because by the time I was writing the book, the four tendencies, I was already very, it had already been very well framed out in my mind. I'd been thinking about it for so long. So it's probably, you know, four or five, six years that I was thinking about it. 
Um, which was good because it, it's, you know, one of the things that's fun about it is like, I'm the one and only world expert in it, which is good in that, like, it's great to be like the world's leading authority on something, but it's also bad because I can't just like look something up on Google. I have to think of everything and notice everything, um, myself. And so, um, so I think it's good that I, I, I have been thinking about it for a long time because even now I'm seeing nuances or seeing patterns that I didn't, that it took me a long time to recognize. Like one of the weird things, just like a, a funny kind of anecdote, rebels seem to have, rebel children seems to be unusually likely to have close relationships with their grandparents. This is just something that I've noticed. It just seems to come up a lot. And like, I don't know what to make of it. It's just like over time, I'm like, it's really striking how often rebels or the parents of rebels will mention their close relationship with their grandparents. So it's just like, th those are the kind of things that it's like, does it mean anything? I'm not sure. It's sort of an interesting data point to consider if you're, you know, if you're thinking about a rebel in your life. Yeah. Gretchen, has diving into the four tendencies affected what you've chosen to read or how you read? I'm just thinking, can you turn off that switch in your brain that when you're reading Anne of Green Gables, you can't stop typing all the characters? You know, it's funny. Uh, no, I do that all the time. I'm always on the lookout for it. And it's always really exciting um, when I spot one. Um, for example, a book that I love, and, I, and we might have talked about this on the children's literature episode. This is, te this is technically, I think, an adult novel, but it feels very YA to me is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book called His Majesty's Dragon by Naomi Novik. Um, it's a fantastic book. And one of the things, and I was rereading it for like the seventh time, and I was like, oh my gosh, the main character is an upholder, and the dragon character is a questioner. And it just couldn't be more obvious, like in every single thing they do. And it's like, well, maybe that's part of my pleasure in the book, is that I'm identifying so strongly with the main character uh, in his upholderness, that's part of what pleases me about reading about him. And certainly like when Harry Potter, it's like, who's the most famous upholder in the world? It's Hermione. Um, and uh, and I think so. Yeah. And, and but one of the things, too, is I'm always kind of looking for the four tendencies. Um, and so if it occurs to me, sometimes I'll read a book or reread a book thinking like I just reread again, speaking of upholders, I just reread Remains of the Day, um, which is a wonderful book by Ishiguro. Um because that's an upholder. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting to see it play out. And I actually got lots of insights into some of the weaknesses of upholders from that character. Um, so it definitely does. Like, I definitely am steering my reading in what, if I think that I can get insight into the four But see, sometimes I, I don't know. I can't look it up. I can't, you know, it's not in the card catalog. So I kind of just have to grope toward it and hope that I find things that are illuminating in my, in my framework. Uh, no, it is definitely not the kind of thing you can Google. Mm -mm. Do you frequently read and find yourself unable to type someone just because of the information that is or is not on the page? A hundred percent. I mean, because uh, you don't, I mean, also characters are created. And so sometimes people will be created and like, that doesn't like from the four tendencies framework, this character doesn't make sense. And so that's part of like, sometimes I think that's like a weak. In fact, my sister, um, who's a television writer says they now, when they're doing characters, they'll think about their tendency because it does, it does sort of help you shape, give you depth in somebody's like, how would they respond or what would their objections to a certain situation be? Um, but not all characters obviously were created with my framework in mind. Um, and then often you're just not given enough information. You're, you're, you see why somebody's acting, but you don't understand why they're acting. And so you don't know what their tendency is. Um, one of the great, speaking of Harry Potter, one of the great mysteries in my life is are Fred and George questioners who are just highly mischievous or are they rebels who are actually very, concerned about like succeeding in the world. I can't make up my mind because I don't have enough information about how they think. We see how they act. We don't really know how they think. Yes. And I've heard a lot of writers say that before they learned about certain personality frameworks, their characters didn't seem quite like they could actually be real life people, but they couldn't put their finger on it. And then they realized like, oh, this, these kind of characteristics don't tend to go together. So like, like in Myers-Briggs or the four tendencies, like they just this one person has characteristics that right don't ring true that wouldn't exist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. They're using that in the writer's room. Okay. Well, I can't wait to dive into your favorites and hear about how we'll see the tendencies at work in them. 
Gretchen, here's how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book that's not for you, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Ooh, yes. Um, I'm going to the library later today, so uh, this is very well-timed. Um, so one of the books that I, because I think the four tendencies, like we were saying, is really about uh, human nature. I, one of the books that has been, for me, the most illuminating about human nature and also about how you can talk about human nature is a wonderful, wonderful book. It's it's a seminal book in the history of, of English literature, which is uh, James Boswell's biography of Samuel Johnson, The Life of Samuel Johnson. Now, if, if you do have to like get comfortable with a certain kind of 18th century language, but it's hilariously funny. It's brilliant. It's basically greatest hits of one of the greatest wits and, uh, and intellects of all time, Samuel Johnson. And this was just a good friend of his writing down, not even such a good friend, but like a guy who would worship Johnson, writing down like all his best lines. And so it, it's, it's a great book. Um, and it has so much insight into the into human nature. I mean, I've learned so much. And and Johnson has the ability in two sentences to sum up an entire what somebody else would write an entire scientific paper or even a whole book, describing and just kind of succinctly put it out there in a way that you just feel like um, the scales are dropping from your eyes because you just see the world so much more clearly. And, and again, he's hilarious. So it's a joy to read this book. I've read it, you know, maybe three, four times and look forward to reading it many more times. So that's one life of Samuel Johnson. Um, not everyone is a fan of that kind of language. So you're either in or not. I don't know if you have a taste for that stuff. It's interesting you say that because I know, I mean, my blog is called Modern Mrs. Darcy. So I feel like I'm a magnet for people's confessions about whether they have or haven't read 19th century, especially British literature. And once you're used to it, you forget how you do need to get acquainted with the language. But yeah. Yes. And the pacing. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get into that, that, that frame of mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, and kind of on the opposite end, super accessible, very short book. You can get in and out. You can grasp it in the title is Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. And what I love about The Five Love Languages is like everybody kind of everybody thinks like if you don't have a group of undergraduates eating marshmallows to prove your scientific theory, it's not it can't be true. But what I love about Gary Chapman is he was a marriage therapist for 30 years. And this is just what he observed. Over time, he just saw these patterns about how people express love. That's what the love languages are. These are the ways that people express and perceive love. And once you read it, you can't get it out of your head. You're like, oh, my gosh. It's like I get myself so much better. I get the people in my life so much better. I understand why we have conflict. I understand why this person who I know loves me keeps hurting my feelings over and over why they don't get me or why I'm trying my darndest to show love for somebody. And it's like, they don't even care. Um, it's like, and the book is extremely short. It's like, you can read it, you know, very fast. And yet it communicates so much about what I think is like, it, it, it's like, you really feel it in human nature. I don't know. Are you a fan of the five love language? It's not for everybody in that it, he is a Christian minister. So it's very, very, it's like, he definitely has a very, very strong point of view, which I like. I like it when a writer has a very strong point of view and that comes out. It makes it more interesting for me. I am a fan. We give that a chapter in my book, Reading People, Love and Other Acts of Blindness is our love languages chapter. And what I like about it is that, I mean, you're right. I think you could read that book in 60 minutes, maybe 90 if you're not a speed reader. But but it just gives you a way of seeing yourself and your relationships that is very objective, disarming, neutral. It's not accusatory at all. And it lets you consider why people may act the way they do that's not different from you, but is not stupid or wrong or mean or hurtful. It's just, it's not your language. So yeah, I do really like it. I mean, I'm all up for getting some good wisdom about you know, myself, other people, human nature in general, wherever I can find it. And I found this to be a great source. Yeah. yeah, I think it really resonates with a lot of people. It explains a lot of things that otherwise seemed kind of mysterious. Like, I think I'm being a loving spouse, but my, sp but instead, like, like no one appreciates what I'm doing. And it's like mad at me. And it's like, okay, well, you just don't understand. Like now everything's going to be um, clearer. So yeah, I think it's really helpful. And then Another writer who I feel like 
is so astute about human nature and I feel like it could be, I could just read it and read it and reread it over and over is the essays of George Orwell. Um, I love, I admire Orwell so much as a writer, just in general, like I constantly am trying to understand how he achieves what he achieves in terms of making transition, making surprises, word choice, economy of language. Um, like it's so vivid and accessible. You're like, how does he do that? Um, I don't agree with everything he says, but he's always so profoundly thought provoking. And in his essays, he's just able, like he's got this essay called Charles Dickens where he talks about, and this is the kind of thing I sit around and think about all the time. It's like, who's the better writer, Charles Dickens or Tolstoy? I'm like, these are the kind of thing I'm like, why wasn't Flannery O'Connor obsessed with St. Therese of Lisieux? I will think about that for like a week straight. And, you know, you're like, who's interested in this? Nobody. But of course, Orwell is such a brilliant writer. He makes you interested. And just in his discussion of like Tolstoy versus Dickens, it's like he gets at the heart of a million aspects of human nature in such a beautiful, fascinating way. He's able to get at subtleties of human nature in so, and, and, and write it so well. Um, I feel like I, I, I feel like anyone who's interested in human nature um, could could read his essays. And then there's there's a couple books of selected essays if you really want like the top hits. But then there's a giant volume that's the collected essays. And I mean, I think this is one of the cases where, you know, I I like the collected one. I mean, the the whole thing because there's a lot of good ones that didn't make it into the selected selection how many inches thick are we talking for the collected essays yeah it's pretty thick i mean it's not this is not something that you're sticking in your bag for a long airplane flight like this is one that stays on your bedside table but that's the thing about essays is like they lend themselves especially for people who like to read like one chapter a night or something like that they're very much like that they're standalone they're not that long they're very dense like you don't feel like you're wasting your time um because you're getting so much out of it but it's it's a pretty so maybe you want to start out with the selected essay and let that be your teaser because that's a very that's like a book you could you know haul around that's a and, and those books and those those essays are outstanding so it's that's great okay Gretchen on the flip side what's a book that hasn't been for you well you know to my sorrow a whole category of books don't really speak to me and that is mysteries and so many people love mysteries and it's a great kind of book to like because it's like if you, there's always more mysteries and there's so many classic mystery writers. I feel like I wish that I could enjoy them because there's so much reading pleasure that I'm not getting. Now, occasionally I will, like somebody was like, even if you don't like mysteries, you should read Tana French because they're not really mysteries. They're just books that have a mystery in them. And I do love Tana French. Um, you know, and I'll read some just to get what everybody's talking about. Like I've read some Agatha Christie. I read the memoir of Agatha Christie, which is a fantastic book. So if you're a fan of Agatha Christie, run right out and get her memoir because it's so fascinating. But like, I like the memoir so much better than I like her mysteries, you know? And I think most people would say like, eh, who who cares about her memoir? I, you know, I like her mysteries. So I wish that I like mysteries more um, because I see that people love them so much. Um, but they just, I, to me, they always, I'm always at the end, I'm like, eh, I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, do you ever feel like you have a shortage of things to read? No. Oh my gosh. My list of reading gets longer all the time, almost to the point where I feel panicked. And what happens to me is I'll get obsessed with something. Like right now I'm obsessed with color. And so I'm reading all these books about color, which really have nothing to do with anything. Like it's like, why am I reading about this? I have no idea. It turns out there is a French historian of color who like every year or so writes, he wrote a book blue, then he wrote a book black, then he wrote a book green, his book red just came out. I'm like running, you know, to get these books. So in a way, my, everything is just getting more and more and more, um, where I do feel kind of sometimes I don't, do you ever get this feeling of almost panicky? And I also love to reread, which a lot of people don't like to reread, but I love to reread. So I'm like, how do I have time to read the new stuff? Plus reread. Plus there's new stuff all the time. It's like, it's crazy. So I think this is why what you do is so great, which you're like helping people figure out there's so many amazing books in the world, but sometimes you can't, you don't know what to read. And that's so frustrating. So if somebody says like, okay, take it from me, here's a great book to read. It's like, ah, no greater pleasure than that. 
because there are so many books that you don't want to spend your time on the ones that aren't for you. And I totally relate to what you're saying. And I did not expect you to be hurting for reading material. But I relate to feeling a little bit panicky because some British newspaper did an article a few years ago that said it would take a lifetime to read all the books published in one week. So I wouldn't feel too bad about your dislike of mysteries because that is one whole section of the bookstore that you just don't even have to look at. And like, I kind of wish there were more genres that just weren't. I mean, I always want to branch out. But on the other hand, if there are categories you just know aren't for you, that lets you focus on the ones that are. That's true. And like, and along those lines, one of the things that I did fairly recently and was such a benefit to my reading life was to let myself stop a book uh, if I decided that I didn't like it or that I like just didn't care because I'm like, I used to have this feeling that real readers finished mm-hmm. and I kind of wanted the credit for it. You know how in your mind you kind of give yourself credit. And also I have this Facebook page where I, uh, where every week I post what I've read that week. And so sometimes I'd be like, Oh, well, you know, I'm halfway through or something, but now I'm like, no, mm-hmm. stop reading mm-hmm. if it's not interesting. Cause then I have more time for the books that I love. Cause I'll never run out of books that I love to read. So why would I waste my time on something where I'm like, I don't really care. Yeah. You know? Oh, I hear you. And that is my journey from real readers, finished books to, I mean, now I just, I can't. So well, what I mean is I read, and this may be you too, but I read so much stuff that's not, that's not, that might be in galley form. Like you have nothing to go on and you don't necessarily know if you're looking for books for a certain purpose or a certain category. Like I'm always looking for summer reading guide titles every year. I can tell on page 20, this might be a great book, but it is not what I need right now. And I just, I would maybe literally die under the stacks if I couldn't stop. Right, right, right. And then you have more time for the books that you love. Um, and it's funny though, too, like, you get obs- you get really interested in a subject, and so the books are intensely pleasurable to you. Like when we were debating, my family was debating whether or not to get a dog. And whenever I'm faced with something like that, my answer is like to go read a million books. And it turns out there's a giant literature about people and their dogs, which I had never noticed before. Just like there's a giant literature about color, which I had never noticed before. And I and I like I read this book by Carolyn Knapp, Pack of Two, and I'm like, this is the most fascinating book I've ever read in my whole life. But like, had I not wanted to get a dog, I would never have read that book. You know what I mean? So it was like, it was the right book for me at the right time. And I could completely appreciate it. But at another time, I would have been like, eh, why am I going to read a book about this woman and her dog? You know, so, so, so a lot of it is also, it's not in the book, it's in you, the reader. Yes, absolutely. What are you reading right now? Well, so back to the idea of the four tendencies, one of the things, and I kind of predicted this, but but now I'm really confronted with the reality of it is one of the things that people always ask me about the four tendencies is who are celebrity examples of the tendencies. And it's better if they're real people, because like I can talk, you and I can talk about Hermione Granger or Jane Eyre being a questioner, but to a lot of people, they're like, what? Who's Jane Eyre? I saw that movie, you know? (laughs) And so, but again, it's, I can't just look it up. Um, And so I'm, what I'm doing right now, because I am getting all these questions about celebrity and I, and I get it. I get why people are interested. I'm trying to read memoirs and biographies um, of people who are well known to the pop to pu- the public at large, ordinary people, um, to see if I can find more very distinctive examples of the four tendencies. And a couple of times, kind of on my podcast or on social media, I've asked, like, if you know about the four tendencies, can you suggest anybody? And it's been interesting. Um, like, I there's a book that's literally, called, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, it's called Lawrence the Rebel. And I'm like, ooh, from the little that I know about Lawrence of Arabia, which is basically what Winston Churchill wrote about him, he sounds like he might be a rebel. So I'm going to like read that book. And, but then I, but really, usually I have to read a couple of biographies or memoirs of people because you can't just take one person's view. If it's a memoir and it's somebody talking about themselves, well, you can accept their version of what they thought and why they did what they did. Like Anna Kendrick wrote a book called Scrappy Little Nobody. She's an actor who's very, you know, she was in Twilight. And somebody was like, I think she's an upholder. And I read it. And I'm like, yeah, she is an upholder. So now I'm like trying to track down, or like Andre Agassi is an obliger. If you read his brilliant memoir, Open. I loved that memoir. See, but it's been so long and I wasn't reading it through that lens. I might have guessed Rebel. So you might because okay. there is a deep affinity between obligers and rebels. So that's very interesting. But that's the fact, like if somebody from the outside describing Agassi might, might think he was a rebel, but when we 
know how Agassiz is thinking himself, how he's feeling, how he's describing his emotions and his actions. That's when it, I mean, when I was reading that book, um, I literally was like getting chills because I was like, he's so proving my theory, you know, because that's the, the only proof I have is out in the world. Like, am I right? I'm like, Andre Agassi is a textbook obliger. I mean, every check, every box on the list is checking off and what he's saying, how he's describing himself. Um, and so I have a long list of books now that I'm trying to read to, um, to see if I can use them as examples to, for people to get a sense of, um, you know, somebody said Marlon Brando, he played a rebel, but is he, was he actually a rebel in life? Um, uh, Amelia Earhart, was she a rebel? That she has the kind of life that from the outside makes her look like a rebel, but she could also be a questioner. She could also be an obliger. She could also be an upholder. So I'm interested. So I'm do I'm I'm sort of like in a mode now where I'm trying to do that research, but it's hard because you have to read like first to figure out whether Steve Jobs was a questioner or a rebel. I mean, I had to read like three long biographies of Jobs that had like lots of people's observations of him, lots of quotations from him, lots of kind of evidence of how he thought and the way he acted in lots of different situations before I could really say yes. Steve Jobs is a questioner who tips to rebel. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, I have an idea for the direction we're going to go with this. We'll see what you think. Well, Gretchen, this has been really fun to hear about what you're reading, and especially those celebrity memoirs. I totally get why people are asking, because they want to see examples of real people. So what I have in mind is I know you love Kidlet, and I thought it might be fun for the listeners and for you to recommend three kidlit titles, because we didn't get to talk about that much today, that I'm, I'm going to choose because they contain characters that are such great examples of one of the tendencies. Now, you see the problem with this situation is you're the expert, and I'm not. So you can read them and tell me if I totally miss the mark. But, but there are a lot of books out there, and I'm going to pick the ones that I feel pretty confident about because you get a little insight into the characters from their point of view, telling you why they're doing things, not just what they're doing. So that makes me feel better about it. What do you think? Excellent. I can't wait to hear. All right. For book one, I'm debating between two Sharon Draper titles. Have you read her? No. You know it's a good sign if your kid gets you hooked on an author. So she wrote the excellent uh, Coretta Scott King winner, Stella by Starlight, that came out a few years ago. But I think I want to go with Out of My Mind. So this is not a book you're familiar with? No, I'm so excited. I, I don't know her work. I'm thrilled to have a new, a whole new author. Well, fantastic, because I have questions. Okay, so Out of My Mind is about a girl named Melody. She has, I think she's eight years old. She has uh, cerebral palsy, which means she can't talk until she discovers something that gives her a voice for the first time. And she's in school. She's in special education classes. She has a mother who is an intense, amazing questioner and who walks in the classroom and says, well, why are you doing it like this? Well, why are you doing it like this? Does this really get my daughter what she needs? And now that I'm familiar with the four tendencies, I can see how a questioner advocate, like a champion for someone who needs one, really makes a story sing. Do, mm -hmm. am, is this a thing? Yes. No, I absolutely. I, I cannot wait to read it. That's going to be, the, I, I would love to have more examples of questioners. So, okay. Out of my mind, Sharon Draper. Okay. I'm going to read it. And I don't want to type mail. Like I'm really reluctant to type children in general. I don't know how you feel about that, but the mom, I feel good about the mom. Okay. There's also, there's also a neighbor who's very important in Melody's life who I think might be an obliger, but I don't feel like I have enough insight into why she does what she does to make a firm pronouncement, but maybe you will. Okay, great. Okay. So that's one. All right. Book two. What do you know about The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley and her brand new The War I Finally Won? No, I don't know that one either. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Okay. Which one? So is this, are these sequels? Yes. The, the new one just came out. Read the first one first. It's a Newbery Honor book. It just came out in 2015. This is a recommendation that has landed with many adults and many kids. So it's the it's the war that saved my the life war that saved my life. So this is set in England in World War Two, the very beginning of World War Two when Oh, I read this book. Did you wait and they go out? Uh, yes. Yes. 
No, it's very much like a book called um, Good Night, Mr. Tom. I've heard of that one, but I've not read that one. Yes. And she she was like, like her mother was really mean to her and they were up and she was like, never left her house, her apartment until she was out, get to the Blitz. Yes. So if you like that book, read Good Night, Mr. Tom. It's very much the same story, but about a little boy. But if you like that, you will like Goodnight, Mr. Tom, which is a book that I read a long time ago and also loved. Interesting. Okay, so. Oh, but so what was the tendency that you were thinking? Okay, so when these kids get evacuated to Britain, nobody wants Ada and her brother because she has a club foot. But their caretaker, her name's Susan, she takes them in out of a complete and total sense of duty. And I don't know that I would have felt comfortable typing her based on The War That Saved My Life, but I just read the brand new The War I Finally Won, where you get a lot more into Susan's head and you learn her backstory with her family of origin and also of some significant relationships in her life. I think she's an upholder. Oh, okay. I got to read the sequel, which just came out. So, okay. So that, yes, I can see the argument from Upholder, but it's not definitive. But okay, the sequel will have, uh, will give us more evidence that we need. Excellent. Good. I did not know. I had no idea that there was even a sequel to that book. So this is very exciting. Okay. And that's called The What? The War I Finally Won. Okay. All right. And it's a good one. So my theory is that she takes the children in out of duty. She, many things in her past life she's done out of duty, but she has also done things that have been very unconventional for the time because she felt they were right, right for her or right for life, which made me think maybe not an obliger, but, but we'll, I'm very curious to hear what you think. So, because if I'm wrong, I want to know. Okay. Book three. I want to tell you about a book that's just been long listed for the National Book Award in young people's literature because I think people are going to be talking about it and because I love the Four Tendencies dynamic in this book. But I am not sure if I see this as maybe being a book that's for you. And I've read it and I'm not sure that it was a book like that I'm going to cherish with all my heart and soul either. But I just love this dynamic here. So it is, I am not your perfect Mexican daughter by Erica Sanchez. And this is just released out November 17th. And what happens is we have a, I think she's a 15 year old girl. Her name is Julia and her older sister uh, dies in a tragic accident. And her older sister, Olga was always the perfect Mexican daughter in her family. Like she was the good older daughter. She was dutifully going to college, working at a job, supporting to the family income, helping their mother clean houses. But Julia didn't want any of that. So she wanted to do her own thing. But after her sister dies, Julia begins to discover that her clearly obliger sister was absolutely in a hardcore obliger rebellion. (gasps) Yeah. So, and Julia explicitly is narrated from her perspective. So you, you get to see how she thinks, but also she explicitly says in the book, I ask questions about everything and I don't want to do anything that doesn't make sense. So I just, I didn't really understand obligers until you explained obliger rebellion in the book. It was one of my favorite concepts there. So can you explain what that is and then what the dynamic might be like between this questioner and this obliger who secretly was in full on obliger rebellion? So this has to do with the the tendencies have to do with how you meet expectations. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. Outer expectations are like a work deadline. Inner expectations are like keeping a New Year's resolution. So upholders readily meet outer and inner. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they don't like anything arbitrary or inefficient or irrational. And they're always asking why. Like the mother that you were describing earlier who's like, why are you doing this way? Why do you think this is what my daughter needs? Why, 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 why? Um, Then obligers readily meet outer, but they struggle to meet inner. So this is like, you know, I was describing my friend on the track team. She's an obliger. She readily meets outer expectations, but she struggles to meet inner expectations. And then rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. So what happens with obligers is they can fall into obliger rebellion, which is actually often depicted in movies, books, and television because it's so dramatic when it happens. So because obligers readily meet outer, but they struggle to meet inner, they sometimes start feeling neglected, taken advantage of, exploited, unheard. They feel like 
um, burdens are becoming too heavy and they don't, but they find it hard to resist because they feel this strong need to meet outer expectations, but they don't have their own inner expectations to act as a counterweight because that's what upholders and questioners have. They have their own ability to meet their own inner expectations and that allows them to, um, it shields them from the pressure of outer expectations to a very large degree. So when an obliger gets into this feeling of being taken advantage of or the burdens are too high, they fall into obliger rebellion, which is when they're like, okay, I've been meeting, 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 meeting expectations, but now I snap and this I will not do. And sometimes it's small and symbolic, like I'm just not going to answer your emails. And sometimes it's huge and dramatic, like I'm going to drop out of school. I'm going to end a 20-year friendship. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to get a divorce. Um, and it can be very dramatic. And, um, and so a lot of times, or it can be aimed at the self, like I'm doing everything everybody expects me to do, but, you, but I'm not going to go to the gym, even though I know that if I went to the gym, I'd feel better. My back pain would go away. I'm just not going to go. And you can't make me because I'm in full obliger rebellion. So it makes sense that somebody who from the outside seems like the perfect Mexican daughter would make maybe if she's an obliger, it's like at some point she might feel like this is too much. I'm meeting everybody's expectations. There's nothing left for me. And so I'm going to go into rebellion. And maybe it's like a secret rebellion where nobody knows what she's doing. Um, I haven't read the novel. Now I'm so intrigued to see what form her obliger rebellion takes. My college roommate went into obliger rebellion her second semester senior year and failed several of her courses. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, she still got into Yale, which is where she was my roommate, so it it was fine. But I'm like, that's bold. That's a bold form of reality. She just stopped doing any work. She was just like, you know what? I've had it with you people. I'm not doing anything else that you're asking of me. So it can be pretty dramatic. And in her case, it was fine. Nobody cared. But I can imagine situations where that the consequences could be extremely fateful. So now I'm so intrigued to read this book and see what the sister discovers about the secret life of her her sister in Obliger Rebellion. I'm glad to hear it. Okay, for readers thinking about reading it, so National Book Award is going to be everything a lot of people need to know. Like, that's going to make them want to read it. But if you're on the fence, um, this is a YA novel, but it's a really gritty one. And it's only about 300 pages, but some of the critics have said, and I take their point, that there is just an enormous amount of hot-button contemporary topics packed into this book that it could have been like a quartet not just a novel so they really we have we have an undocumented immigrant family we have um, mental illness issues we have a sister who died we have a family in poverty we have a relationship with a rich kid Um, there's a lot going on in this book but if you want a good discussion starter there's a lot going on in this book lots to talk about Gretchen of those Three titles. What do you think you'll read next? I think I will read the, the um, Out of My Mind by Sharon Draper. Maybe because it was just the first one you talked about. And so I'm like, okay, I got to go. I got to go get that one. Um, but then I also want to read the sequel because while well, I still remember the first book. But, and then the one you just described sounds amazing too. So uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll just go, wa- go, wander, go wander in my favorite bookstore and see which one I, I my hand lands on first I don't know sometimes it's really a struggle where you're like ooh, which one should I read first and then I end up rereading Anne of Green Gables because I don't <laughs> I can't make up my mind there's always a little bit of having to steel yourself to enter into a new fictional world I find um, even the most accessible accessible most beautifully written book you know you always have to like get your mind melded with the mind of the author. And there's it's a little bit of startup with that, I think, sometimes. Um, it's exciting, but it can feel like a little bit of work. I've been reading a lot lately, like more than I have been able to for the past couple months, where, so I'm on the cycle where I'm reading a book. I mean, if it's a, if it's a book like Out of My Mind, in a day, where I'll start it at 5 p.m. and I'll finish it at 9, which means, or I'll do that over the course of a couple of days, but I keep ending up, Binge reading. Oh my God, it just feels so good. Yes. But then the next day you're not in the middle of a book and you have to decide all over again, which is fantastic, but also a little overwhelming sometimes. So I hear you. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. It's not a bad problem to have, but it's kind of a problem sometimes. Yeah. You just kind of can't make up your mind what you're in the mood for. That is a real thing. It is the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? Yes. Gretchen, well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I cannot wait to uh, get these books in my hot little hands. 
Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gretchen today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Gretchen and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 102. That's 102. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can connect with Gretchen through her site, GretchenRubin.com, and pick up her new book, The Four Tendencies, wherever new books are sold. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, we have a great episode coming your way next week. I'm talking to new Alaska resident and regular reader, and yes, you can hear it in my voice. I think that term totally needs quotation marks, but I'm talking to Catherine about her favorites, which all have a creepy edge to them. She didn't even realize it when she submitted her form at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash guest, but it is nevertheless true, and we're diving in next week. That's episode 103, and it's going to be good. If you are remotely close to Asheville, North Carolina, we are having a What Should I Read Next live event Saturday, November 4th, 6 p.m. at Malaprop's Bookstore and Cafe in Asheville. It's free. It's open to all. It is the furthest east we've ever had a What Should I Read Next live event. Mark your calendars. I can't wait to see you there. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.